it's a very simple process, right? If we've actually helped them realize the potential of change, because that's the biggest component of the sales process that we need to help them through, they've got to be committed to change. You know, unless you're selling something transactional, but most of the time, even transactional, but most of the time they're buying change, they're buying the outcome, right? They're buying the future state. And they've got to be committed to change. They've got to be committed to get this is why so many people drop off from gym memberships. I've done a lot of work in the, in the fitness industry. The reason why they see they have a lot of attrition, right? They have a lot of churn because people aren't actually committed to the change that they want to achieve. And so no matter what you do, if they're not committed to it, they're just not going to achieve it. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Luigi Prestonenzi. He's the founder and head of growth at the Sales IQ Group out of Melbourne, Australia, as well as host of the Sales IQ Podcast, of which I was honored to be a guest on as well. Now, in our conversation today, we talk about the essential mindsets for sellers. And I know, I know that the topic of mindsets can make your eyes glaze over. But I think that's maybe because you don't fully understand what mindsets are and how important they are for sellers. I mean, think about mindsets as sort of a lens through which people filter and process how they experience the world. You know, it's not as often as sales, salespeople think about it, you know, I have a hustle mindset or a determination mindset. That's, I don't know, those are maybe attitudes. Mindsets are different. In this episode, Luigi and I dig into some of the critical mindsets for sellers, like a growth mindset, an open mindset as well as a few others that perhaps you haven't really thought about before that could help you in your performance. So it's a great conversation. We get into mindsets and much, much more. But before we get to Luigi, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you'd also subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing with a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Luigi, welcome to the show. Andy, I'm very excited. I, uh, I think I said to you before we started recording I've recorded that many podcasts, but for some reason today I'm nervous. Uh, hey, you know you've come to the home of the best conversations in sales, so you got bring your bring your A game. Awesome! Well, I'm really excited uh, to be on the podcast, Andy, and, and pumped. I've, I've listened to you for such a long time. It's great to be on the other end. Yeah, well, I was just on your show. That was a great experience. So, um, as people maybe can guess from listening to it, you're you're in Australia. Uh, Melbourne, to be precise. So, how are things going? I mean, you guys just sort of came out of an extended lockdown, like about 111 days or something. Yeah, something ridiculous. It's the longest in the world. Um, a couple of weeks ago, so yeah, it was nearly you know, five, six months, maybe longer. Um, but harsh lockdown. So, you know, five k weren't allowed five k's away from our house for a couple of miles, um, only an hour a day. Some very, very strict limits. So, it's great to have some form of normality back. Mm. Now, do you live in a, a house with like a backyard? So, it's outdoor space or are you in an apartment or? No, I'm out, I'm out in the burbs. So, lots of okay. space. That's one of the good things about living out here. Lots of space. So, I made sure that, you know, during, I think, you know, transitions from that work, working from home is that I found myself working too many hours, Andy. So, the sure. breaking up the day and getting out for a run um, has been really, really important to keep mentally sort of you know, focus and making sure that I don't spend all my time on Zoom calls. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very important. So a question for you about Melbourne. It's always sort of fascinating. I mean, we didn't talk about the last time, but so Melbourne seems to have this uh, obsession with like really tall apartment buildings. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're, who are they racing against? You know, just, 
you know, they used, they, I remember the Eureka Tower was like the tallest residential tower in the world, and then now they've got one even taller they're opening. Yeah, it's Beth Open. That's right. They've even beat the Eureka. I didn't think they could get bigger than Eureka, but um, hundred yeah. hundred stories. Can you imagine living <laughs> on the hundredth floor of a building? What if the elevators went out? I know, I know you have to walk, but um, yeah, we've got an obsession <laughs> with, with with really really tall apartments, and they're really small. So, um, <laughs> oh, in, inside they're very small. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty small. Unless you're um, you know, unless you've got a lot of coin. And uh, you can afford the, the the big big lofts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Think about that. Living hundred floors up. <laughs> I mean, I live in a high rise, but I'm like on seventh floor. Here in San Diego, in New York, we have one on the tenth floor. But it's like, yeah, I can't imagine being. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. Well, this. Uh, so I was curious about what the apartments looked like inside. What? So I was going online and looking for videos to see if anybody. Had, had when they had this interview with this this couple that were living with their young son in like the 75th floor of, of the Eureka Tower. And <laughs> <laughs> they said, yeah, a lot of our friends can't come up because they can't, yeah, they've got vertigo. That's just too too severe, even though there's no balcony or anything like that. Just being inside the building is too much for them. Yeah, it's pretty, and it, it, there's an actual, you can go to the top, it's called Eureka Sky Deck. And, um, oh yeah, with the, the glass floor that goes out? Yeah. Yeah, and it goes out. It goes out. I think like four or five meters outside the building. Um, Nothing. And then it's got. Uh, and what they do, it's actually pretty cool. The glass goes from frosted glass to clear. And so they. While you're standing, standing on it. it. Yeah, you're standing on it. And all of a sudden, it makes this noise. You hear like a crack, and it, and it makes this noise that it's about to crack, and then it just goes woof. And all of a sudden, you're just standing on nothing. Um, you know, 88 floors in the in the in the sky. It's actually pretty full on. <laughs> and I did oh, it, I've okay. done it a few times, and I did it with a couple of um, people from Austria. And I'll never forget, like you know, she she literally clings on to the side. Yeah, she started freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would do the same. I mean, I'm I'm okay at heights when I'm inside a building, but yeah, put me on something like that or like on a cliff edge or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not happy at all. Oi. Yeah. I probably was screamed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So one of the things we were going to talk about is, is mindset and the importance of mindset in sales. So let's start off. Just define for me how you or what you consider a mindset to be. Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, you can look at it in a, in a couple of different aspects, but um, I think with anything, with anything we do in life, mindset plays a crucial role. Um, I've, there's a great book that I read by Dr. Carol Dweck called, you know, called Mindset. Um, mindset, right? Yep. Incredible, incredible book. You know, it talks about the fixed versus growth mindset. Um, and I think with everything, we can of, of, often look at things, you know, based on our you know, previous experiences and that can impact the way we look at things. And one of the things I loved about my son, um, Andy, you know, when he was four or five years old, he's always had this incredible um, desire to be a footballer. He wants to be a professional footballer. And, you know, from a really early age, he had this thirst and energy for life. Some would, would say he had ADD, very energetic, jumping around, you mm-hmm. know, incredibly energetic. And, you know, I'll never forget, you know, he was lining up, for school, and I can remember it like yesterday. And I went to pick him up from school, and you had all the kids, like all the preps, lined up, right? 
They're all looking great. You know, that first day, fresh clothes, all the clothes were big. They were too too big. Um, the clothes right. were too big for them, right? But you could just see a genuine, um, you know, thirst for learning. You could see a thirst for, for life, right? And, you know, I'll I never forget this, that, you know, and I, I spoke to a couple of his, his, his mates that he just, he just met and, and, and the conversation and little, little boys, you know, and what do you want to be when you're older? And I want to be a fireman, you know. I want to be an astronaut. My son, I want to be a footballer. He was absolutely paramount that, that football was his, was his motivation for life. And then the thing that I find mindset impacts people is as they get older, they get to that time in life that some go, well, I don't know what I want to be when I get older. It's not even about what I want to be when I get older, but they start to see things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens a lot for me in, from my perspective when I look at sales professionals. Often happens to salespeople. You know, they try something once or they've done something before, it hasn't worked, and all of a sudden they think, you know, well, that doesn't work, I'm not going to try it again. And they can develop a fixed mindset. So, you know, why do I use the the example of a, you know, of a, of, a, of a child going to school? Because I think if we all take that mentality of, you know, everything that I'm going to do, I'm going to I'm going to go in with it with a with a thirst for learning and a thirst for that anything's possible, regardless of the previous experiences that we had, our mindset will allow us to capture the full opportunity that's in front of us, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's for, from my perspective. I think you know that's that's why mindset's so important because it allow it allows us to be the best we can be, or it can also hold us back. And I know in certain parts of my life, um, I've got a great mindset with some parts, and then other parts, <laughs> my mindset's horrible. And then because I know I say it's horrible, and you know what, it's kind of like I'm feeding the fact that it's horrible, right? Um, so you know that's that's one of the things I think that. that for me, mindset's just about the way in which we look at things and our and our and our ability to be look at things with an open and growth um, focus versus closing. Yeah. Well, I think there are multiple mindsets in sales. Personally, I mean, I think certainly a growth mindset is one. But I I agree with you. I think important for people to understand that when, when academics and so on talk about mindset, it's like a lens to think about service, like a lens through which people filter and process how they experience certain aspects of the world. And, and one of the best things I'd read about it was to say, well, consider it like a, a mindset that's like a spectrum, 180 degrees from one end to the other. And, you know, you talk about growth in a fixed mindset. So a growth mindset is one which you know, people see people and themselves, obviously, as being able to change and to learn, as you talked about, to, you know, acquire new skills, new talent, and acquire new intelligence, get smarter. Yeah. And the fixed mindset serves the opposite, right? People aren't really able to change. And so you look at it on that spectrum, on one end is growth and on one end is fixed. And we're all sort of somewhere in the middle, right? We're all all a mix. You know, sort of like if you have a, I don't know, maybe a, a faucet handle that, you know, one direction's hot and the other direction's cold and you like it just so yeah you're you're adjusting the mix and that's yeah i think with mindset that's the thing for people really to keep in mind is that very rarely are you all of one or all the other is you're some combination and your goal oftentimes should be is how do i change the mix yeah absolutely and how do i how do i try to look at things from a certain perspective you know how do i try to just change the way i might be looking at something because sometimes it's not 
you know, it's, it's just the way that we look at things and we can see it from a very, very different perspective, right? And we can achieve a different outcome. Um, and I think that's what mindset's all about for me. It's just the way in which I look at things and the way in which, because I know that when I look at something in a certain way, I'm able to achieve a certain outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if I don't achieve the outcome, there's always a positive that I can find from something, right? Um, and so that's that's what I find that's really interesting about mindset. I, I find that it, you know, um, it can be it can be the best way to create something out of nothing, and it can also be, you know, an incredible hindrance that stops us from moving forward or that prevents us from getting the most out of something, you know. Right. Um, and I think from my from my perspective, Andy, you know, having some health challenges when I was younger, it enabled me to see things from a very, very certain perspective um, and allowed me to develop a really, really strong mindset for growth and, and, and have a real hunger and thirst um, for learning. So, so what were those challenges? Yeah, so it's interesting. I haven't really shared this before on my own podcast, but my, I, had, I had cancer when I was younger. Um, oh. So, you know, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma and okay. – uh, I had uh, a very tough, tough period in my life where, um, yeah. you know, I received uh, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, um, and it was a, it was actually a really challenging experience. How old were you? Um, I was 20 years old. That's um, sort of the time that starts can happen for some men. <laughs> so I was, uh, it was really interesting, you know, I was uh, yeah, 20, 20 years old and, um, I found it very difficult. I found I found the process very difficult. I found there were some days where I had some very very dark days. You know, on the steroids, I couldn't sleep. I was oh, steroids are the worst. Steroids no. are the worst. <laughs> you know, there was moments I was in hospital. I was in in uh, I couldn't I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. You know, I couldn't hold anything down. Um, so you were at university when this happened? Uh, no, I was actually working full time, and then the You're second. Working. Yeah, and then I, I went to university as an older age student. Um, Got it. Because I, I didn't really, I struggled at school. Um, school was not my 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 most uh, funnest experience. But then I did decide <laughs> to go back to uni at twenty three, and then I right. went back to uni at twenty three, and then um, three months into my um, bachelor of marketing, I actually um, had a, a, a semi relapse. Um, I was in remission, and then I had to leave uni. Um, to undercourse another um, process of treatment, uh, and then I, you know, it was the gods telling me that maybe university and, and school was not for me. And, um, <laughs> Which you already <laughs> thought, but if we just need to confirm it, let's let's give Luigi cancer to, to burn that lesson home. Yeah, and so you know, luckily that I I, I, I was you know always in sales. It was it was uh, the, my first my first job out of school. Um, I'd done some really cool things in, in contact centers. When I say cool, you know, I was I was just good on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was good at converting. I was good at calling. Um, so I just fell back into a role, um, into a role back in in sales, and and the rest is history. You know, it, it probably well, but how did you when you came out of that experience though? I mean, how did you feel different than when you went in in terms from a no? Let's talk about from a mindset perspective. I mean, here you'd had this huge life-threatening event you that took course over what, a couple of years yeah and yeah. so how do you think it changed you for the better you know yeah, I, I it's, a, it's a really interesting question andy and i think for me how did it change me for the better it, it, it created a hunger and thirst just to to learn and go out there and do something right 
um, because I was held back in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And and being held back, it wasn't because of choice, right? I was held back because of an illness of um, of, of of having cancer. And and coming out of that, it was like, wow, you know, now I'm 24, 25, because it really was a number of years that it kind of um, changed the course of my life. So you sort of feel like maybe you're behind a little bit. Absolutely, I felt big time behind. You know, big time, right? I haven't got the education. Um, what am I going to do? Don't have enough skills. You know, I can sell on the phone, etc. Um, and very different marketplace. The Australian marketplace compared to the US, we view sales very differently, right? Um, oh, how so? Well, to some extent, you know, back in, you know, SDRs today is a cool thing, right? Being an SDR, it's kind of like, wow, you know, being an SDR, the sales, you know, outbound, um, it's kind of it's kind of become a really cool thing in sales. But telemarketing, what we used to call it when I was on the phone, you know, <laughs> it was not a cool thing, right? Uh, intrusive. <laughs> yeah, it was seen as intrusive, entry-level job. Um, oh, you're in sales? Um, oh, you're a telemarketer? Um, and it was it was it wasn't seen with the with the most positive of light, and and nor did our profession, you know, the industry give itself the most positive rep either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I always felt behind, um, but I was good at it. You know, I was actually really good at it, and um, and I think there's a lot to be said if you can learn how to sell on the phone. And actually, like I know people, there's always a debate of cold calling, but if you can actually learn how to call somebody at home, a consumer, completely unsolicited and get them onto a conversation and build some element or, you know, level of rapport and then get them to a point of decision, there's a lot to be learned from that process. And it's not just necessarily about learning about how to convert somebody on the phone. There is an element of mindset that you learn because I can tell you what, there's a lot of rejection that goes on, not objections, you know, not mm-hmm. the rejection. There is get, you know, they, they swear at you, they hang up on you, you do that, you know, you get 50 hang-ups. <laughs> yeah. And you build a level of resilience that I think a lot of sales professionals today struggle with, right? Um, and we're told, you know, use LinkedIn, there's all these other channels. But fundamentally, there is some, there are some basic fundamentals that as a sales professional, if we can develop that, that foundation, right, that's what we can build a successful career on. Um, and that's why when I look at my career, I think that was a really critical time that at the time I didn't realise how important it was. And then obviously having cancer and being delayed in my career, um, you know, really gave me, really created that thirst. And I just wanted to learn and, and, and books were my best friends. You know, um, Relationship Selling by Jim Cathcart was just an incredible read when I read it mm-hmm. back you know, 19 and, um, the Little Red Book of Selling and the Sales Bible from Jeffrey Gittemore. And, right. And then probably one of the best books in my B2B career was Strategic Selling by Miller Hyman. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I used that exact book to land my biggest deal at the time, which was nearly $10 million. And um, it was an awesome book. I still got it. I still reference it. Sure. I still, I still, yeah, I still got the, um, the highlights. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not outdated. I mean, this is <laughs> – so we'll get back to that part. But I think that – what you also, though, when you talk about, you know, you, you had this hunger to learn and so on, but I think that you also had an advantage, mm. I would imagine, over your peers, job peers, not age peers, that were doing similar work at the time because you 
clearly must have developed a level of resilience coming through your your cancer treatment that no one else had had to experience. I mean, that has I, I would imagine that that was part of what kept you going. Yeah, and it also you know what what it also allowed me to do it allowed me to t- see things from a different perspective and not just perspective as in it was like more of an age perspective. So when mm-hmm. I was talking to C levels executives because that's who I was talk that's who I was selling to in my mid twenties. I had a different, I had a, a level of life experience that my colleagues at 25, 24 didn't have. Yeah, for sure. And I was able to have deeper conversations with my customers and my clients and my prospects because I was seeing things from a completely different light, right? I had a young child. Um, I'd already had, um, I had cancer. I had some really challenging times, like, you know, I'm going to lay it bare. Um, Money was tough, right? We were living week to week. If I didn't get my commission check, I was in a lot of trouble. Um, and so, you know, I was able to have some very deep conversations with my prospects and it allowed me to to build some incredible, incredible relationships. You know, I was talking to people in their 40s that were 20 years my senior. Sure. Um, I would think part of that, though, stemmed from the fact that having gone through what you went through is that unlike other sort of relatively inexperienced sellers who – worry about how the call is going and get nervous is I imagine you probably you knew what was important right I mean you knew in the grand scheme of things that having that conversation isn't a matter of life and death you'd already had that situation so I think that I would think that maybe helped you yeah it's being able to have that perspective that yeah I want to do well here but if it doesn't happen that's not the end of the world absolutely you know I think uh, that's a great thing that's what I keep saying like the greatest thing about selling is if one person doesn't buy today, there's another thousand people out there tomorrow that you can talk to, right? So it's not like, yep. and that's the, the, that's the abundance mindset. And sometimes I struggle with that too. I think, you know, of late this year, I've really been challenged mentally by by everything that's been going on. But one thing that hasn't challenged me is the is the, the law of abundance when it comes to sales. Like right. there is just, and the greatest thing about the world right now is there's such a massive market that we never were able to tap into, you know, 20 years ago when I first started in, you know, 18 years ago. Is we have an unlimited amount of opportunities out there. So, you know, the reality is success is not about my company or, you know, what my company's doing from a marketing perspective. Success is all about, like, you know, how open am I to go and attract the opportunities that are out there in the market? Um, exactly. They're out there, right? Like, there is literally... Well, the world of abundance at the moment. They've always been there. I, I, I <laughs> early in my career, early in my sales management career is, is I developed this, I call it the, the, the big world theory. And, you know, I'd have a seller, seller come to me. And, and at that time, I think I was, I was uh, managing a team of people that were selling overseas and as well. And, you know, they complain. It's like, yeah, somebody didn't buy from them or this wasn't going well. And I'd say, you know, it's, let me talk my big world theory. It's a big world out there. There's lots of other people who don't buy what we sell. <laughs> Go find <laughs> one. <laughs> it's just like, it's always been that way. That's one of the beauties about sales, I think, is that, yeah, and this was at a time we were selling to, the products we were selling, we figured we had maybe 300 prospects in the world for this satellite communications network we were selling. That's still a lot. Absolutely. It's still a lot. So, yeah, so that's abundance mindset. That's that is absolutely an essential part, I think, of of sales. Yeah. The growth mindset we talked about. Uh, I think that yeah. if you're in sales and you don't think you that you have the ability, 
to change your abilities or your skills, then sales is not for you. It's going to be very difficult for you. If you're a sales manager and you don't have a growth mindset, if you don't think that mm-hmm. that the people that work for you have the ability to change, um, then you're going to treat them as such. Your feedback is not going to be very good. You're not going to be very effective as a coach because you sort of think to yourself, why bother? Absolutely. We also create, like, I think we all, we can also create our own barriers. Like, we can, by saying, you know, um, we've tried this before, it hasn't worked, or you're right, like a sales manager, oh, you know, I've, I've, they don't like my coaching or they're not open for X. We're creating, we're putting it out there. But that's going to happen. And I know some people might might be rolling their eyes going, oh, here we go. But I think manifesting and what you actually say actually comes to comes to reality. You know, I, I coach a lot, a lot of inside salespeople, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them say, oh, you know, people don't answer the phone. I'm like, well, you're kind of creating that barrier for you. If you're ringing someone with the anticipation that it's going to go to voicemail, expect it to go to voicemail, right? Um, I've done kiosk sales before, right? So literally sitting in a kiosk in a, in a shopping center is a very challenging um, sales sales process to execute. <laughs> sure, sure. And uh, you've got to have like you know a mentality of um, that people are, people want to talk to us. That you know we can impact people in a positive way. But if you look at it, I'm about to interrupt someone, then it could possibly become become a you're going to set the expectation that that's what's going to happen. Um, and I think you know that's another that's probably another element of mindset and. You know, the stuff that I'm talking about is not, you know, stuff that I've created, Andy. It's it's from the books. Like you look at the, some of the books like, um, you know, Og Mandino, The Greatest Salesman in the World and Napoleon Hill and Jim Rohn and Earl Nightingale. I mean, this, these are some concepts that they've talked about, Paul J. Meyer, for, for you know, hun- over 100 years, right? Um, yeah, yeah, close to it, Og Mandino for sure. Yeah, like there's some stuff out there that, you know, they, they, they talked about that is, is probably even more relevant today than what it was back then, right? Um, and I think, you know, there, you're right, there is a whole whole range of different mindset, um, elements of mindset that we can take into different different parts of our roles, um, whether it being sales or, or management or coaching um, or marketing. Well, another example, I think, for sellers is this idea of an open mindset versus a closed mindset. So an open mindset, yeah. are people are open to the ideas of others, sort of focusing on finding the truth, maybe this is really the learning mindset to some degrees is, is this is where the learn it, like all the learn it all comes. But they also have some humility because if you've got an open mindset, you since you're open to the ideas of others, you're willing to accept the idea that you could possibly be wrong. Where <laughs> the closed mindset, I think, is, is a huge problem in sales is because it's sellers that think they serve know-it-all or maybe they're overly scripted, which is another version of sort of thinking, you know, I know it all because I'm not interested in exploring beyond the sort of sets list of questions or whatever that they do. Uh, so I think this idea of open versus closed mindset is is another one that's very prevalent in sales and worth thinking about. Absolutely. And you know what? We've also got to recognize, I think, as, as an industry, you know, we, we've actually kind of created a bit of a closed mindset with our buyers. You know, some of the, some of the behaviors – that we've exhibited as an industry um, have created that barrier between buyers and the sellers. You know, there's still a lot of data out there about the lack of trust between buyers and sellers. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's probably the key mindset that we need to be taking in as a sales professional. You know, what are those characteristics and behaviours that we need to exhibit with our prospects and our customers? You know, what is our, what is our charter 
um, from a selling perspective? You know, how are well, we going to elevate position? That's a huge question. So what is the charter of a salesperson? I, 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 it's a really good one. I think, you know, there are certain characteristics and behaviors that we need to exhibit across, you know, th- across a couple of different things. And I look at it from, you know, relationships are fundamental. And I know that can be debated right now, but, you know, relationships are key. Um, that speed to trust component. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't trust us, they're not going to share anything with us, right? So trust is absolutely key. And how do we do that? We've got to have a focus on, on, on relationships and, and building rapport with our prospects. Um, and then looking at about, well, how do we actually create value for them? And what are we, what are we prepared to give to them without any expectation of return? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so, I mean, you do it with, with all your content. You give it so much um, and ring DNA. There's so much content available that, that can help people regardless whether they buy from you or not, right? Yeah. Um, and that's paramount because you're giving stuff, you're helping people um, with no expectation of return. And then the third element is looking at the partnering for success. So by truly partnering, you know, like not not making a sale because a sale is a single transaction, but it's actually saying, I want to partner with you. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to help my, my customers and my prospects be successful over a long period of time. And, and and that might mean that, you know what, we might be talking today and you might not buy from me for a long time. And it's okay because ultimately, if time is not right for you, no matter what I do, I can't force you to that point of decision. Um, and if I try to do that, then I'm not helping you choose me, am I? And I think that's the type of mentality that that that'll um, that charter. It's about going. My role is to help. My role is to guide. My role is to facilitate and help the prospect arrive at a certain decision point. Right. Um, I, and I'm glad you came around to that point because that's yeah. I'm very explicit about that. Is I think that this this is a huge problem. I believe in terms of that we set sellers up for failure or for not succeeding to the level they can because they have the wrong perspective about what their job is. Mm-hmm. And you basically said it there, just your last sentence, which you know, your job as a seller is to help your buyer make a purchase decision. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not to, it's not to get an order. If Absolutely. you go out with the perspective that your, your motivation is just to get that order, we know it's there in the background. It completely goes away. But but you can help somebody and still have the agenda of wanting to win their business. I mean, Adam Grant in his book, Give and Take, talks about being a giver with an agenda. That's okay. But the thing that's driving you is I want to help this customer make a purchase decision. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes the decision is not with you. Sometimes, you know, we're not the right person to help the customer. Sure. And that's fine too. And that's okay because, you know, what the, the, the relationship that you'll build is going to be incredible anyway if you help them regardless if they buy from you or not. And a lot of people think it's what we've got to remove the barrier of it's all about the order because it's not because, you know, if we can provide a great experience, if we can unlock an incredible buying experience for our buyers, regardless whether they buy from us or not, if they don't buy from us but they've had a great experience and we've helped them, we've educated them, we've helped Mm -hmm. them at a point that's going to improve their business, they've got contacts, they've got suppliers, they've got customers. That they can, I get some of the best referrals I get are from people that aren't my customers that don't buy from me straight away, right? It's and well, I mean, I think yeah, I think that and to your point about you know the great customer experiences. Oftentimes, people wait, sellers wait to ask for referrals until the system's been yeah whatever they sold's been installed and it's referenceable. It's like no, I always ask as soon as I get the order. I sometimes ask the prospecting stage, right? Because they because they know at that point exactly what you're doing. Mm. And do you know anybody else? 
that had you know, similar requirements to you. Totally, it's that way over my my uh, career. Yeah, I mean, and, and as we know, re, re, you know, getting referrals is the best type of lead because, and it, you know, it comes with an element of trust already, right? It, it, there's there's a there's a level of trust because they're passing your information or somebody else's information to you. But again, that comes mm-hmm. back to that 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 whole that focus on on the role of a sales professional versus a salesperson, right? Um, and 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 there's a certain code of conduct. There's a certain element of, of, of respect and, and principles that we need to uphold. And I think if we can continue to focus on that, um, then we're, all, we're going to give it the best shot to be the best we can be. But I also think what, what, what can sometimes drive the negative aspect of selling is when people have a lack of, of pipeline, then their mindset goes out the window or then not even maybe probably the wrong term goes out the window, but they then forget about the fact that, to help people, they're only focused on achieving their objective. And you know what? I can I can feel their pain, right, Andy? Because mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hard, right, if you're struggling to make um, sales, it can have a detrimental impact across other areas of your life, right? You might not be able to get that commission to pay for the kids' school fees or pay for your mortgage, whatever it could be. Um, and so then it it can, it can be quite quite a, a challenging experience for them. And so of course they're going to focus on the outcome. Um, but but ultimately, when we when we challenge the way when we change the way in which we approach our prospects and our customers, and we're focusing on our needs, you know, we're not focusing on our customers' needs, and that that might not deliver the best buying experience for them. No, not at all. Well, so here's another thing to the buying experience. I think that that's a mindset again. Knowing there's two ends of a of a mindset is that, and I think this. is sort of collectively we as an industry as a profession do a disservice to sellers is we focus too much on persuasion mm. instead of influence you know we yeah. focus persuasion is about getting people to change their minds influence is about helping them make up their minds and i think as a seller you want to be in a position of helping the customer make up their minds about how they want to solve their problem and how yeah. they want to achieve their desired business outcomes and if you're focusing on persuading them in that environment, then you're just focused on you and what you're selling, not them and the problem. And I, I think this is one of the I think this is one of the biggest things that sellers are confronting that they don't know about it, but it's a problem. Is they're trained, hey, we're going to train you how to persuade people to want to buy your product, and then you see books like uh, Catalyst by Jonah Berger that was published earlier this year that talks about you know research shows very distinctly that. Everybody has a built-in resistance to persuasion. Mm. So isn't it funny that as an industry, we spend billions of dollars a year training people how to persuade, which is the one behavior that every single one of our buyers hates. (laughs) (laughs) So so how are we helping? Yeah, and you're so spot on, right? Because when you ask people, when you go into a crowded room and you say, right, who who likes to be sold to? There's not a lot of people that put their hand up, right? But who likes to buy? A lot of people say, well, I want to buy, right? Um, and I get you actually spot on. Like I shouldn't have to persuade you. If if I've done a really great job in asking some questions, it helps you crystallize your thinking as a buyer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Go deeper. They've come to, you know, they've moved beyond the, the, the obvious need. They've moved beyond the emerging. We've actually helped them uncover some unrecognized needs. So we're creating yes. value even before they buy, right? Exactly. So they're going, this is great. 
And then we help them just to determine, well, what's the finance, you know, commercial benefit? Well, the commercial benefit's higher than what I'm going to pay. So the actual outcome is actually is there. And we're facilitating them to say, well, you know, and this is what I love about the perfect clothes from, um, from James Muir because it's seeking them to say, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to move forward. And it's a very simple process, right? If we've done, if we've actually helped them realize the potential of change, because that's the biggest, you know, component of the sales process that we need to help them through, they've got to be committed to change because they're not, you know, unless you're selling something transactional, but most of the time, even transactional, but most of the time they're buying change, they're buying the outcome, mm-hmm. right? right? They're buying the future state. Um, and they've got to be committed to change. They've got to be committed to get this. Is why so many people drop off from gym memberships. I've done a lot of work in the in the fitness industry, and um, <laughs> the reason why they see they have a lot of attrition, right? They have a lot of churn because people aren't actually committed to the change that they want to achieve. And so, no matter what you do, if they're not committed to it, they're just not going to achieve it. So, you know, I, that's that's why I don't. You know, the, the, I had this conversation with somebody earlier today. The closing techniques, like why should we be using closing techniques? Um, to get a person to make a decision, if, a, if if there's a business case there that's compelling for them to take action, and if the business case is not compelling, then we haven't done a good enough job helping them realise the potential of the decision they're about to make, and that's on us. That's not on them. Yeah. Well, I think there's I've a, a, another way that I look at it, and I've looked at this way throughout my entire career, and it's interesting that subsequently I've read research that sort of substantiates this is that buyers really basically have two motions they go through in buying. I mean, there's a lot of minor steps in this, but basically two motions. First motion is, how are we going to solve our problem? Mm-hmm. And the second motion is, who are we going to solve it with? This yeah. first motion, the how phase, culminates in a choice. The buyer always makes a choice. They formulate options. We do this in every decision we make in our lives. Mm-hmm. We formulate options for how we can, for that, for that decision could be to solve a problem, could be where we're going to go. And then we choose the option that we think would be best for us to accomplish our objective, whatever that is. Yeah. Well, that's what happens with customers. Our customers is, to your point earlier, if you're doing a good job, you're engaged at the point, what you do is you help them define what their problem is they're trying to solve. You help them come to a better understanding of that. That's value. Yeah. They then formulate some options, for how to solve their problem based on what they've learned so far. They then choose the option that makes the best sense for them. Mm. Now, oftentimes, when they do that, the customer does that, chooses makes that choice, is that then put it in an RFP and put it out to multiple vendors and say, please bid on this. And that's when you have an RFP that you look at and you say, oh, yeah, this has Luigi written all over it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you want to accomplish. That sales is you, you want to be the choice. Absolutely. You want to be the chosen option. And then this whole idea about closing. And the, you know, to your point about the business case, the customer does the business case before they choose the option. Yep. And that that step from being them deciding how they want to solve it to who they want to solve it with, if you're completely persuasion-oriented in your mindset, you're not engaging with the buyers oftentimes until they're deciding on a vendor. Correct. That's too late. They've already decided how they want to solve the problem, and it ain't you. Yeah. And the other thing that you've put there, right, um, the collaboration component, I think we, we often forget about this, and this is the mindset. We're going to go back a step, right, because you just mentioned something if they go to RFP. Now, 
if you're a sales professional and you've conducted the relevant research, you'll know if the company has a procurement policy that says anything over X needs to go to market, right? Um, you'll know that by the research that you've done, okay? Right. And if you don't know that and then you've done all this work and they go to RFP, then you're not preparing yourself for success, right? Because through that collaboration process, you would have learned exactly what their buying process looks like. Sure. And, you know, and so I think we, we often, again, we think, yeah, I'm, I'm persuading. If I'm persuading, I'm not collaborating, right? And collaboration is key. It's not about me selling to you. It's me sitting side by side and designing an outcome that's going to help you achieve your goals. And we're doing it together because we're a partner. And that's, right. one, of the, you know, that's one of the characteristics of a sales professional, that we're partnering for success. And that means we're going to sit side by side and we're going to co-create this incredible opportunity that's going to help you achieve your objections. And I'm going to help crystallize. And I'm not just going to you know, tell you what you want to hear, but I'm going to challenge to some respect and provide insight and value um, and, and share some things that you might not be aware about, be aware of, because I have that level of expertise as well, right? Um, and I think that's a completely different mindset to that one. I'm here to persuade you and put the you know the pen down on the paper and say, you know, Benjamin Franklin. Press hard, there's three copies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which one do you want to take? You know, I, I think that sort of stuff there, and it still happens. I'm perplexed that these sort of techniques are still happening every well, day. they're taught widely. Um, the vast majority of mm-hmm. salespeople still act this way. And I said that's the disservice that that we do to them by not giving them the right perspectives. Because yeah, we train people up on skills every day, and and we have industries that are pretty good at that. But if the skills aren't applied with the right perspective, if you don't have the right heading on your compass, uh, yeah, you're gonna end up end up off the mark. <laughs> and and people really need to understand as sellers really need to understand what they're trying to accomplish, and they want the buyer to choose them as the solution to their problem. And then if they, it happens all the time. You know, they go through competitive buying situations or multiple vendors. Whether you call it an RFP, a final specification, a requirements document, one always exists. Mm. But did you, influence the, did you influence the composition of that? And if you're too late to the game because you're just focused on trying to get an order, yeah, you're, you're always going to be fighting for second place. That's right. And, that, and that's where, you know, again, I, I go back and say, look, the discovery element of the sales process is, is always the heart of it, right? Because that's where we really understand, you know, I love to ask, you know, pass-based questions because it can help what you. What questions? Asking questions about the past. The past, okay, yeah. Because it helps you determine, you know, people go, oh, Bant and all those sort of techniques and, you know, are you the decision maker? And personally, I <laughs> those questions, right? <laughs> But understanding how they've purchased previously gives me it provides an indication of how they'll pr- purchase in the future and how they purchase. Mm-hmm. That allows me to really understand about the different stakeholders that are required, and and then help them really. And that's you know go back to that strategic selling book from Miller Hyman, right? Um, knowing the buying hierarchy, having your appraisal summary set out, knowing the org chart, knowing who 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 who's required to help you know bring this point, bring this solution to a point of. Um, of outcome, and the other thing, Gartner, I think, says, "What is it? Seven to nine, or seven to eleven buyers in every stock now, right?" Yeah, well, I think there's, I yeah, I think 
I think they suffer from stakeholder inflation. But yes, um, <laughs> it's a good one. Stakeholder, I like that. Yeah, because <laughs> yes, undoubtedly there are more stakeholders involved in decisions, but this number jumps by leaps and bounds nearly every year, which is not really what's happening. Yeah. Um, but the basic lesson is the truth that more people are involved in decisions. Because yeah, there's more people involved in, in certain disciplines within companies that that have the expertise. But yeah, yeah, yes, I, you got you got to know who the stakeholders are. And I, but I mean, here's here's a perfect example, though. Again, of another one is, and I actually spoke at a summit yesterday about discovery, um, which is my favorite topic to to talk about because it's so underutilized as an effective tool for for <laughs> establishing influence with the buyer i mean yeah. discovery is the best tool to do that Absolutely. but yeah again another just issue about mindset and perspective is is we talk about the various stakeholders so what are they thinking about you know most sellers it's like well okay we've got this persona that's been written about these various stakeholders and so i'm going to ask this person these types of questions that you know, elicit sort of their answers about these types of concerns that typically have, which is all well and good. But I think this harkens back to something we talked about right at the beginning is, is the, but the person you're talking to has something personal at stake. They have mm -hmm. a business thing at stake. And so everybody looks at everybody looks at every decision from two perspectives, from what's it mean for the company or the enterprise, or the team, what's it mean for me personally? Yeah, absolutely. And, if you don't uncover that during discovery, and then you're trying to do as you talked about, so, you know, how do you how do you shepherd or mobilize the the stakeholders in your direction? If you haven't bothered to ask those questions, do you think it's not important? Yeah, that's problematic. But you know what you're sharing with us, Andy, is a two day training program cannot enable you to know this sort of stuff, right? And or a two-week induction does not enable somebody to learn this stuff. This is experience. This is about somebody like yourself and myself who's taken the time to be deliberate with how we develop our skills. And through experience, we've been able to understand this stuff. And, you know, you look at a doctor. I mean, what does a doctor do to, before they go from, they, they've got to do, what, six, eight years of, of education and they've got to do an internship before they can actually start to, you know, the process is a long process, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But we expect sellers and go, okay, come and, you know, do a two-week induction and then we'll do a, a training program and here's the personas and maybe here's the playbook and off you go. And we'll give you our most expensive capital, which is our customers, to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. just go, you know, no, we'll do, a, we'll do a sales kickoff once a year, right? That'll fix the problem. <laughs> but we don't actually respect that it takes time and it takes a constant focus, and it takes experience as well. And this is where coaches and leaders are, are absolutely crucial in the process because, you know, we're there to help guide ourselves through this process as well, yeah? We're there to help guide because we've been there. We've seen it before. Um, but, but that's where I go. Like, this is why I love the, the art of, of selling is because no matter how, how good you get, there's always another 1% of learning that can go, you, you can go through, Right. Um, you've always got another opportunity to enhance the process. You've always got something that you might not have considered. Right? I, I've absolutely loved the last couple of years. You know, for me, I'm like you, Andy, that the, the, the discovery is the most important part of the process. 
you know, most of the biggest projects I've done, the biggest training project I sold was nearly $20 million in Australia mm-hmm. and New Zealand, training over 4,000 people. And it was an unbudgeted investment. They did not have the P&L for it. They yep. didn't have it in their, in their budget. And so, you know, that's why BAN is one of the most challenging, um, for me, methodologies because the biggest programs I've put together were never, they were never budgeted for. We always have to get them But that's always the case. That's why BAN is such a myth is that, and there was a study done on this, uh, it came out sometime in the last seven years, six, seven years, something like that, that said that, yeah, only like 21% of sort of, I don't know if this was specifically IT, but sort of major capital expenditures were specifically budgeted at the beginning of the year. Yep. Because somebody came, like you, and built a connection with somebody, established some credibility and trust, and then started asking them questions about what the challenges were, what they wanted to accomplish, and built a business case around it that made it compelling enough to say, yeah, let's do it. And when you got something like that, they always have the money that's this is something that i think most salespeople don't understand is when you make that happen your customers always find the money Hmm. yeah you you know it's funny i've got a a, one of my old clients um from from 10 years ago uh news corp you know obviously big conglomerate all right um did a big project for them and, and the executive general manager who's become one of, one of my closest mates, we actually ran the Chicago Marathon together in 2013. Um, but one of the things that he constantly, he taught me from a, from that C-level perspective is, you know, of, of how he built, built the business case internally and how he would then put in the buyback. Like, you know, because he would, you know, incredible investment in capital for, for print machines. You know, sure. talking, you know, huge, huge investment. And he would have to do like a three to five year um, business case to demonstrate, hey, this is what we're going to, this is what the buyback's going to be over a period of time. Um, and that stuck with me quite early. I'm like, well, what that should relate, that's, that's how the business is making these decisions. And sometimes they don't know how to buy the solutions that we sell, right? The, Rarely, right. So we have to also help guide them and mm-hmm. help them shape because many people don't buy the things that we sell, many people don't buy CRMs. You know, every month or every year. Um, yeah, and they don't. You know, they don't, they don't have a process for it. Yeah, correct. So how do how how do they need to go through that? Maybe they need a bit of education. Maybe maybe we need to share with them what the process looks like for others and the journey they went on, and what they need to consider, um, and some of the challenges they might see when they go through the implementation, so that we can make them aware about that before they even go down this path of making the decision. Um, so I think there's a whole element, but but again, taking it back to, to what I said earlier, Andy is. This is not something that, and this is having that attitude and that mindset of being the apprentice, you know, is tackling sales every single day with a mindset that I have so much to learn today that regardless of what happens, if people buy from me or they don't, I'm going to win at the end of the day because I'm going to take away incredible learning from every sales interactions I have. Now, do, does that happen to me every day? No. There are some days where stuff goes wrong and I'm like, I'm blaming the world, <laughs> Right, and I don't find the opportunity in it, um, and that's why for me the focus every day that I try to have is to say, okay, it doesn't matter what goes on. I'm going to really going to try to get the positive out of these sales interactions, and if I don't, I need to go back a step and say, well, why didn't I take the opportunity of learning from that particular example? Um, and Keen McLaughlin, I know, I think you've had Keen McLaughlin on your. Oh yeah, yeah, I like Keen. Love Keen, right? I had the privilege of working with Keen 
some pretty cool things. And um, that's whole, his whole premise of win loss, right? There is an, there's a learning in every single aspect of the sales of the sales process. Yep. Um, and I think you know anyone listening to your episode today, the one thing that I'd like them to take away from this is you know having that mindset of an apprentice of always be learning, um, and that no matter what happens, we are you know if we take that 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 mentality and that that attitude in, we're going to be better today than we were yesterday. And if we can get better each day, then we have a we have a, a great opportunity to achieving what we want to achieve in our in our sales career. Love it. All right. Well, that's a good way to end the conversation. Um, thank you for wrapping up so neatly. So, so Luigi, if people want to connect with you, how should they do that? Yeah. So um, I'm pretty. I try to be active on LinkedIn. Luigi Prestonenzi. I know it's a mouthful, um, but Prestonenzi. Yes, so uh, big AC Milan fan, and we won't go down. I that. was going to say, if you want to <laughs> capture Luigi's attention, talk talk <laughs> soccer. Um, but I've got my own podcast, the Sales IQ Podcast, which I'm really passionate about, and I've learned so much in that journey. It's actually helped me be a, a better sales pro. So please find me there um, on LinkedIn, and that's probably the two best places uh, to engage with me. Perfect. All right. Well, Luigi, as always, a pleasure to talk with you. Andy, absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. And also, Andy, thanks for the contribution that you make to our, to our industry and our community, mate. Oh, appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's, it's my pleasure. I, I, I tell people, you know, doing things like this podcast are ultimately very selfish endeavors because, you know, I get to talk to really smart people like you and, and you know, we've done close to 900 episodes. And so, I've, yeah, I've talked to almost a thousand really smart people and learned a ton. So, um, yeah, make sure you listen to Luigi's podcast, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back on this one. Thanks so much, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show, and I want to thank my guest, Luigi Prestonenzi, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.